Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's Scripture Reflections. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. Good to be with you, Ashley. Yeah, good afternoon. Good How's it going? afternoon. It's It's going well. We uh, started planting things in our little tiny Brooklyn garden. Um, oh, nice. Yep, so. What do you got? Like vegetables? Or got just... some veggies. Yeah. Um, we also planted some tulips last season that have bloomed for the first Ooh, time. So, are they coming out? Yep, they are. So uh, signs of spring wow. and resurrection all around. Including in our drink this week. That's What's on tap, Zach? Correct. So this came as a recommendation um, from our producer, Maggie Van Dorn, who is, um fled New York City, tragically, and is missing some really good cocktails. So she, to cope with that, she purchased the cocktail recipe book from the illustrious cocktail bar Death & Co. If you've ever been to New York and had the privilege to get a seat at that place, you know how amazing it is. Um, so we wanted to have something on theme with the resurrection. Um, someone who conquered Death & Co., um, which is Jesus Christ, our risen <laughs> Lord. And so to celebrate his rising, we've got Live Free or Die. Um, with we, And we've got this for a couple reasons, because A, as we've said, Jesus conquered death. Um, so he is both has both died and lived free forever and ever. Um, but also because there are bubbles of champagne rising from within this drink that has a base of bourbon, uh, port wine. What's the other thing? I think there's some absinthe. <laughs> absinthe and cherry liqueur. There we go. So um, cheers to a risen Lord. Cheers. Happy Easter. It's still <laughs> Easter. Ah, that's delicious. Mm-hmm. All right. Who are we talking to this week, Ashley? We are talking to Flora X. Tang. She studies post-traumatic and colonial theology at the University of Notre Dame, and she recently wrote an article for America titled Purity Culture, Racism, and the Violence Against Asian Women in Atlanta. Yeah. Last month after a man killed eight people, including six Asian women in Atlanta, um, Flora wrote this really beautiful and brave piece um, reflecting on this intersection of, you know, the legacy of Christian purity culture and racism and how those interact and how they were, they played out in this Atlanta shooting and how they can, you know, continue to play out as we move forward. And so we talked to Flora a little bit about that piece and in general, you know, why we're so uncomfortable as a church to, to have hard discussions like this about sex and race. Yeah, so we are grateful for Flora for coming on, but before we get to that conversation, we have a few words about our sponsor this week. Now, I don't know about you, Ashley, but I've always wondered if, you know, what I was taught in history class, you know, wasn't exactly the whole story. Mm, 
Yes, I was a very uh, unskeptical child and <laughs> accepted it all as fact. <laughs> well, I know this is, it, it, you know, but we, I think we've come to grow as adults and learn that, you know, we, we're definitely not getting the whole story. And that's not a conspiracy theory. Um, it's just a fact of history that there have been people in movements that have gone under the radar, dare I say secret, that have influenced <laughs> world events. Uh, but it's really easy to get into conspiracy theories on topics like that, which is why you need some solid fact-based historical presentation of the subject matter. Which you can get from the Great Courses Plus. They have a great course on the real history of secret societies with Professor Richard B. Spence. So, you know, he is not a conspiracy theorist. He is a real historian who knows his facts and can tell you the really fascinating history behind groups like the Freemasons, the Illuminati, you know, up to the current time with more New Age movements that are a bit mysterious to the wider public. And I feel like this is of interest to the listeners of this show because the Jesuits are often floated as one of these secret uh, societies. I, first of all, they're they're not that secret. You go, you can go knock on any Jesuit community <laughs> store, and it will probably put any thought of world domination out of your head. Yeah, just they're also not that organized. No, no. So it does not seem possible that they could be taking over the world, um, which is exactly what they would want you to think. <laughs> so, are the Jesuits part of the secret societies controlling the world? Find out the answer to this question. No, and more on uh, the real histories of secret societies at the Great Courses Plus. Our listeners can get an entire month of access to this course and th- hundreds, hundreds of other courses when they sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com/slash Jesuitical. That's a whole month of unlimited access to this course and so many others that are just full, chock full of knowledge. So treat yourself to some food for your brain after that latest Netflix binge. Hit up thegreatcoursesplus.com/slash Jesuitical so they know we sent you. All right, now we have Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. Uh, our first story uh, comes from both the United States and Rome. On Tuesday, Pope Francis accepted the resignation of Bishop Michael Hepner, who is the head or was the head of the Diocese of Crookston in Minnesota. Yes, Bishop Hepner was accused of trying to cover up allegations of sex abuse uh, against a priest in his diocese in 2019, though he has denied this allegation. Right. And according to a statement from the diocese, quote, the investigation which led to the acceptance of Bishop Hepner's resignation arose from reports that he had at times failed to observe applicable norms when presented with allegations of sexual abuse involving clergy of the Diocese of Crookston. So they're not they're not allegations of abuse against Bishop Hepner. Instead, it's that he mishandled allegations against priests in his diocese, um, which is an important distinction and why the story is a big deal. That's right. On, on the face of this, this is sort of like another Bishop resigns in the scandal uh, of sexual abuse story. But this is important because of for what exact, exactly Ashley just mentioned, which is that, you know, Oftentimes, we've critiqued the Catholic Church for, you know, the the first wave was, you know, we have to root out the sexual abusers within the ranks. But the aftermath and sort of the second wave of the abuse crisis that we've been talking about in this show is, you know, how do we hold the people accountable that covered up the sex abuse? And Bishop Hepner is the first sitting U.S. bishop to sort of be investigated from policies that have come out from a desire to fix exactly that. So back in 2019, um, this is following, you know, the 2018 Summer of Shame, uh, when we learned about the abuses of uh, former Cardinal Theodore McCarrick. There was the um, Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report showing, um, you know, 
much more abuse happening uh, in that state than we had been aware of previously, you know, led to this reckoning with sex abuse. And Pope Francis came out with what's known as a motu proprio, which means of his own accord, called Vos Estes Lux Mundi, which means you are the light of the world. And it established new protocols um, for uh, not just reporting allegations of ab- abuse, but how you can hold bishops accountable for their own involvement in cover-up of abuse. Right. And this really is, you know, it was exciting to see when this came out because this was supposed to be a mechanism for holding bishops accountable when they fail to take the proper actions when abuse is reported. And this is... I, I, you know, a sign that it is at least in effect and working. Um, so progress is being made on this issue. You know, we'll we'll see as it continues to develop. But for right now, uh, uh, this is a sign of hope, I think, for the entire church. Yep. What's our next story, Zach? So like a lot of people in this country and around the world, we've been watching the situation in Minnesota over the killing of Dante Wright with sort of great sadness and and a sense of dismay and tragedy. Uh, Dante Wright was only 20 years old when he was shot and killed by now former Brooklyn Center police officer Kim Potter during a traffic stop for expired license plate tags. Um, In the body camp footage, uh, Potter can be seen shouting, taser, 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 before firing a single gunshot at Dante Wright. Um, Kim Potter later said the shooting was a mistake, uh, but family of Dante Wright and protesters have said this really isn't an excuse for the killing. Right. And as of Wednesday, when we're recording, uh, Potter has been arrested and charged with second degree manslaughter in this case. Um, and I think, you know, as people are following this, are aware this is taking um, place in the context of the murder trial for the former police officer Derek Chauvin um, for the killing of George Floyd last May um, in Minneapolis, just you know miles away from where um, where the shooting of uh, Dante Wright occurred um, in Brooklyn Center. Yeah, I um I don't know about you, but I just it, it's hard to know what to say when when seeing this and watching this because it feels sort of like it's all happening. I mean, just that it happened miles away from George Floyd's murder trial is just like sort of unbelievable in some respects and and yet very believable. Um, And I don't know, it feels like a repeat of things we've been seeing over and over again. Um, So it's almost like there, what else is there to say, right? There's a lot that's been said, particularly by, by people of color in this country about the future of, you know, policing, what it needs to look like, what, needs to be done in order to heal the the wounds of racism. Um, for Catholics, I feel like he, there's not an easy fix here, right? There are a couple easy things that I think the church can say and, and needs to say. You know, Black Lives Matter, racism is an epidemic in this country, and sort of full stop. Uh, and it's particularly incumbent on white Catholics to, to stay, I think, stay in this game. Yeah, and there's so much that's tragic about this story, including, you know, the fact that you know, we're in a country where these events seem to be happening so frequently, um, where there's a, a mix of, of racism, of gun violence, police misconduct. Um, and it's, it, you know, it's hard to keep them front of mind. And like, it was, it was just a month ago that we had the mass shooting in Atlanta that left six Asian women dead. Um, and, and that's something we're going to get into with Flora Tang. We're very grateful for her for coming on and talking about these difficult issues. So please stick around for that conversation.
Joining us from South Bend, Indiana is Flora X. Tang. Flora is a doctoral student in theology and peace studies at the University of Notre Dame, where she studies decolonial and post-traumatic theologies. Welcome to Jesuitical, Flora. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I am a huge fan, so it's really exciting to be here. Uh, We love having you on. So, Flora, back in March, uh, following the uh, terrible mass shooting in Atlanta of uh, massage parlors that left eight people dead, including six women um, who were Asian, you wrote a piece for America magazine uh, titled Purity Culture, Racism, and the Violence Against Asian Women in Atlanta. Um, it was a really powerful piece, and we thought we would kind of start our conversation grounded in what you what you wrote there. Um, a quote that I wanted to read and share with people is, you said the shootings were, quote, direct and inevitable result of the harmful theologies of American Christian purity culture. It is the same purity culture that enabled my evangelical Christian high school principal 10 years ago to tell me, a 14-year-old Chinese-born girl, to change out of my short dress to avoid tempting my male classmates and teachers. So can we can we can you just tell us a little bit about the Christianity of your upbringing and and kind of the messages that you were given about purity and sexuality? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I was raised um, non-denominational or evangelical Christian, and I was um, originally born in Beijing, China, and my family moved to the U.S. Um, to East Lansing, Michigan when I was 12, where I attended a Christian school. Um, and that's the place where I got most of my religious upbringing, because um, my, my parents were Christian, um, but yeah, they didn't like talk to me too much about purity or sexuality. So at my evangelical Christian school, um, a lot of the message that was going on was based in the purity culture movement, which started in the 80s or the 90s and, and continued in the early 2000s to kind of discourage um, premarital sex, um, discourage dating, um, and discourage like any form of physical contact. Um, and that, yeah, really targeted uh, young women especially. Um, so young women in their classes were... Um, often pulled out of class for having, for wearing uh, dresses or shorts that are too short. And women as a whole in school um, were often called to a separate assembly to talk about um, dress code and modesty and all those issues. So, And do you remember when you kind of realized, I don't know, that re- were you aware that that was super harmful then? Or uh, or was that later on a realization that like, hey, this this was not something that I really agree with and it is pretty harmful? Yeah, it's definitely something that I realized later on. Um, I think I was a very religious child, and I'm still very religious. Um, so I, when I heard those messages, I definitely like really internalized them and tried to almost be a perfectionist in that sense, because um, I am kind of a perfectionist in other areas of my life. Um, so when I heard those messages, I'll be like, I was like, oh, I'll be like the most pure that I can be. And I think that was, yeah. So it was definitely something that I only realized later on. Um, and I would say the same goes with like my own sensibilities around my own race um, as someone who's Chinese um, at a predominantly white um, high school. So even like all those awareness of like what are microaggressions and like are different messaging hurtful um, are things that I realized later on. Um, so it was pretty harmful to me and for high schoolers who all received that message and really try to live it out. Yeah. I don't think your what you're describing was unique to the evangelical world. I I, I remember when I was 
probably around the same age, 13, 14, I was getting ready for confirmation prep. And I distinctly remember um, this assignment where we were put in the groups and we had to to rank the, the severity of sins on a scale of one to five. Mm-hmm. And two of the options were murder and premarital sex. And this group I was in, I don't know, had, you know, murder is a five, really, really bad. And we put like premarital sex is like a three, which, you know, retrospect, a group of 14 year old boys, even ranking it that high felt pretty remarkable. Um, but yeah. I distinctly remember this teacher berating us saying that for not having them both as fives. And so this equivalence mm-hmm. of like purity and in life, like went hand in hand. And it's a reason that I know a lot of people aren't Catholic anymore from my from my childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, when did you convert to Catholicism, and then ha- did you see traces of that uh, purity culture in in your new church? Yeah, for sure. So I um, so I went to the University of Notre Dame um, for my undergrad degree, and I became Catholic um, my sophomore year fall. And I think a lot of um, for anyone who's a convert, they might know that like switching between religions, even um, two very similar religions, um, takes a lot of deconstructing work in my head with my faith of what I believe in, what I don't believe in, um, who is God, what is the church, and all those questions. So I think as I was um, becoming Catholic or making that discernment to become Catholic, um, yeah, a lot of these same questions were raised up. Although I would say um, my RCIA process was equally, um, yeah, kind of like what you said, Zach. Um, we talked about illicit sexual sins as if they're all equal. So anywhere from sexual violence um, to masturbation. So these two things were um, equated almost in my RCA curriculum as, oh, these two are both equally severe sexual sins. Um, and I think that's a very harmful messaging um, that I also did not realize that was harmful um, at that point. Um, but it was something that I learned later on slowly and slowly in my theology coursework. Something you mentioned before is the difference between what women or girls were were taught and told and what was messaging for for boys. Um, I'm wondering you mentioned how like girls were their clothing was policed, but what were what were men told about women and and their responsibility or women's responsibility towards men? What was what was the difference between between those two conversations? Hmm. Yeah, I remember one thing that from high school was that like only women had their our own separate assemblies um, where we talked about purity culture, whereas at the same time, um, the male students in my, cl- in my high school were allowed to just return to their classes during that time, mm-hmm. right? Um, so I'm not entirely sure what messaging they received, um, but in my um, Bible class, in my marriage class, which that was a unit in my Bible class, yeah, it was definitely this message um, that kind of reinforce different gender hierarchies. Um, like men are supposed to take care of women or financially provide for women um, and be the leadership in the family, um, be the bridge between women or their wives um, and God. Um, so a lot of that spiritual messaging was definitely present. It's switching to the events in Atlanta a little bit, um, the killer described um, the Asian women at the massage parlors is quote temptations um, for him that he wanted to eliminate. Uh, I'm wondering what you were thinking or feeling when you heard that word temptation used like that as, as an excuse or a reason. Hmm. Um, I think the event of that week was um, harmful and hurtful um, to say the least. And also to even, Asian women around the country um, who have not directly experienced that violence. Um, it was 
a reminder of um, their own embodiment um, and how their embodied existence as Asian women can be perceived as such. Um, so hearing that message was definitely hurtful. And like I said in the article, it brought me back to um, the times where my own body was seen as temptation um, by others or perceived to be that way. And I think it's rooted in this long history of um, seeing women of color, especially as um, sexualized objects. And that's something that's really common here in the United States in not only our own psyche, but also in popular media, um, in the ways that different stereotypes are portrayed by movies and even literature. Um, yeah. So what was even more hurtful was the fact that these women were seen as a temptation for the shooter um, can be used as an excuse to say that, oh, this is not a racially motivated crime, right? So th these two things, like between sexism and racism, um, can really not be separated in the conversations that we have as a church and as a country. Why do you think it is important to to name both of those things as um, separate or maybe inter intertwined factors in this in this terrible event? Yeah, for sure. It's definitely intertwined. And I think I always go back to um, the concept of intersectionality um, in these analyses. And we see this um, as well as in the Black Lives Matter movement, where Black women were also especially harmed by um, police violence and violence in general. Um, so I think it's important for um, the church and the country to keep an intersectional lens um, on the violence that people who are doubly marginalized um, experience women of color, uh, or people who are um, disabled um, and a person of color, or people with a low socioeconomic status. Um, so I think keeping in mind how these different um, ways of marginality um, impact how people experience violence is something that like, we as a church, if we were to say that we are a church of the marginalized, should really strive to listen to. Um, so we should listen to their voices and listen to the experiences that um, that others might not share, and that's okay. Um, but to see these experiences as worthy of our spiritual and theological reflection. You mentioned that the aftermath of the events in Atlanta were, were really difficult as, as an Asian woman. Uh, I'm wondering if you, as an Asian woman who is intimately involved in the Catholic Church right now, felt supported in any way um, in going through the things that came up during that? Mm. That's hard to say because I'm um, not currently in attending a parish in person. Um, but so I guess there are both types of hope for support as well as um, places where I despair. Um, for example, um, only uh, I'm currently attending a Catholic school and um, only one department out of the many departments whose email listers I'm on sent out a message um, of support and solidarity um, for the Asian American community in like the week after the shooting. And um, I would have appreciated if there were more response, um, especially from um, the faith leaders on our campus to address this issue as um, an issue of violence, an issue that um, the church um, who stands with the poor and those who are marginalized um, should really pay attention to. But yeah, so I honestly wish for more response and support. But on the other hand, um, my a lot of my classmates um, are um, also theologians of color um, and they're just have been really wonderful and supportive um, in creating a space where, um, so it's outside of the institutionalized church, um, but where mostly Catholic women are able to be together during these moments of trial and um, mourning. Yeah. So you mentioned, you know, the 
the church has these resources or, you know, this, you know, identity and mission where it is supposed to be with the marginalized um, and the oppressed. Um, but you also point out in your piece some of the ways in which um, the way Catholics talk about sex, some of the theology, some of the people we um, venerate as saints can actually contribute to harm. Um, so I'm wondering, what would you pinpoint as a part of the Catholic tradition that that you would maybe want to uh, challenge uh, because of how it how it um, can contribute to violence like this? I would say um, I think we need a new language um, for how to talk about sin um, and a separate language to talk about violence, um, to have like a better distinguishing factor between um, the sins that cause violence against others um, and therefore should be addressed um, through an anti-violent way um, and not just through repentance. Repentance is really important um, and confessions is important, um, but there also needs to be solutions that are um, targeted toward healing the violence of different sins, of sins of racism, sins of um, sexual violence, of police brutality, of other sins um, that's both social and personal. Um, and I think, yeah, that's one way that our church can grow in. Um, and I would say another thing really quick um, is just recognizing the legacies of who we commemorate and why we commemorate their lives. Um, for the things I mentioned um, in my article, um, so St. Maria Goretti is an example um, where um, she is a 12-year-old girl who was murdered um, by her rapist, whereas still in official church documents, um, um, she is celebrated for her purity and for her virginity um, rather than for her, for example, like bravery or other things um, that could be, so like the language around that could be reframed um, in a way that doesn't put blame or even responsibility on young women, um, young girls even, um, to prevent themselves from being sexually assaulted. Um, so I think these are all important conversations that we should have as a church um, that requires us to talk about sex and, I don't know, and all these topics that we don't want to talk about um, normally. Yeah, but I think it's important because those are questions that people are asking, right? Yeah, I mean, goodness, I feel like white Catholics in particular, like sex and race are two things that like we're so unwilling to even like touch with a 10 foot pole with, with ourselves, with the, with, with the news. Um, and I, I know it's, it's on us to try and to ask the harder questions, to dig a little bit deeper. I'm wondering if there are, who are you looking to now? You mentioned your own community of other theologians of color. Um, where, where do you find support and hope right now in the church? in addition to them? I think um, one place I found a lot of support is actually my little Zoom church community. Um, so a small group of me and my friends that's ever growing um, have been meeting in a virtual format um, since the beginning of the pandemic. And most of us have theology degrees who are otherwise interested in ministry. And we've been um, just praying together every Sunday, um, a simple liturgy of the word with some music because of everything that has happened in this past year and a half, like our prayer and worship have been really um, conscious about different issues of justice um, and the intersectional issues between our faith and our social commitments. Um, so I think that's definitely one way that I found a lot of support where I know that the Sunday after I, um, after the shooting in Atlanta, I went to my Zoom church and I knew that the homily will at least mention the names of these women. Right. And it will not be something that's forgotten, um, which has happened in some um, Catholic spaces, um, apparently, where 
an instance of violence happens and then it was not addressed at all um, in either the homilies or the prayers um, and just leaving people hanging there without addressing these really important questions. Um, so yeah, that's one space where I found a lot of hope and support. I, I feel like we've touched on, you know, who we lift up and what stories we tell um, in this conversation. And we want to kind of wrap with an opportunity that we give all our guests for you to name someone to lift up and, and talk about. Um, so I think, you know, it's coming, but if you could canonize one person living or dead Catholic or not, who would it be? And why? Well, wow, I've been waiting for this question this entire podcast. Um, <laughs> I'm really excited. I also have been agonizing over it for the past week. Um, so it better and... be good is what I'm hearing because you, since you've been agonizing, fingers crossed. <laughs> Yeah, fingers crossed. Um, yeah, um, I have a long list actually because um, I can't make decisions. Um, but I, for this week, I think I'm gonna canonize James Cone, um, who, for those who don't know, is um, the founder um, of Black Liberation Theology and a theology professor at Union Theological Seminary. Um, and he passed away in 2018, actually. Um, so he's really influential in um, not only theology as a whole, um, but also in my own theological journey um, as one of the first and most foundational authors I've read um, who, yeah, just really told me that like faith and theology, like the Christian faith, the Catholic faith, all of it um, begins um, from the experience of those who are oppressed, um, those who have been killed unjustly, um, just like Christ himself. So that's where our faith begins. Um, that's where our faith ends. Um, that's where our faith centers around um, of how seeking justice um, for the oppressed and um, liberating them from their suffering um, is part and partial to our identity and our mission as Christians who worship a Jesus um, who died on the cross unjustly. Um, so yeah, I'll go with James Cone. St. James Cone. Yeah. So if someone wanted to uh, start start reading some James Cone, what, what book would you recommend them uh, to go to first? Hmm. I think one book that's a little shorter, um, but really powerful is The Cross and the Lynching Tree, which talks about um, these two instruments of violence um, and how they should be more interconnected and centered um, in in our Christian imagination. So if we worship a Christ who died on the cross, um, we should also try to take down our siblings from the cross, um, from being unjustly killed um, and from losing their lives at too young of an age um, from violence. Yeah. Awesome. Well, St. James Cone, pray for us. Flora, I just want to say thank you for coming on the show and for writing your piece, particularly, I mean, like it was right in the middle of what was happening in Atlanta. And I know that must've been like really tough and brave. So I want to mm -hmm. thank you for sharing your thoughts and your perspectives with us and the readers of America. Yeah. Thank you for having me today. So, Of course. Well, thanks, Flora.
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, now it's time for some housekeeping. This Saturday, April 17th, is America Magazine's 112th anniversary. And that means the upcoming week is the annual giving week here at America. That's right. You know, 112 years ago, the the staff of America looked way different. Um, lot, pretty, pretty sure there weren't any women. Not a lot of women, not any lay people, um, just a bunch of Jesuits. And I don't think they could have imagined, you know, 112 years later, the way that America's transformed. For example... There is a now podcast run by some young, hip, inlay editors such as ourselves. You're right about that, Zach. But we're not done changing yet. You know, we are in a uh, ever-changing, fast-paced media landscape, and America is, is you know, we want to be there at the intersection of the church and the world for the next 112 years. So you can help us do that by donating to America during our annual giving week. Yep. All you need to do is head to americamag.org slash donate um, to make either a one-time or a recurring donation, or you can sign up through our Patreon page at patreon.com slash americamedia and support uh, transformation like Jesuitical in the life of America. Okay. Now we have Constellations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God in our lives this week and where it was harder to find God. What do you have, Zach? So I've got a consolation uh, courtesy of a colleague, uh, Father James Martin, um, who I'm sure lots of people who listen to the show know that he pretty much every day posts a quick little summary of the gospel of the day, um, which I really appreciate, just kind of, you know, tuning myself into the daily readings. And I was struck this week when he posted, um, I think, about Monday's gospel or Tuesday's gospel, which is the story of where Nicodemus, who's a Pharisee, visits Jesus at night um, to just inquire about his teachings. And it was notable to me because I had literally never heard that story before. I swear, you know, I presumably have heard the gospels. They're like these really short texts. Um, They're repeated every three years. (laughs) Yeah, no, I got a degree in theology and I have absolutely no memory of this event ever happening in any of them. Um, which, you know, is notable in itself, but I feel like there are two typical reactions that I could have had to that, which is, uh, I suck, I'm a, I have imposter syndrome, you know, I, I'm not a real Catholic, uh, you don't even know the Bible, loser. That escalated um, quickly. <laughs> well, that's how it often does with the evil spirit. Um, instead, I was consoled just by like, you know, oh, this is delightful. It's like I, I compared it to... Um, like if you're rewatching The Office for the hundredth time on Netflix, and then you discover that there's an episode that you just have fallen <laughs> asleep for the past three viewings, um, and gives this new insight and depth of these characters, it was like that, but with God. Um, and so I was consoled by the fact that God is still surprising me, both in Scripture and in, in everyday life, and I need to just be open to that and be open to those surprises um, and what the where the Spirit's leading me. So that was my consolation this week. So. 
thank you, Father Jim, for just like putting it out there because eventually it was going to come to me, the Nicodemus story. Um, (laughs) Also, it's like really cool. There's like this nighttime element to it where they're just talking theology. I don't know. I loved it. (laughs) All right. Yeah. And listeners, if you want your like daily dose of the gospel, definitely uh, follow Father James Martin on Twitter because he does it every day. It's very impressive. Yeah. Yep. What do you got this week, Ashley? I also have a consolation. Uh, you know, it's a pretty simple one. I've I've talked on the show before about how um, I was concerned that I was going to come out of the pandemic in this time where we've had so much time to work on ourselves and I was going to emerge the exact same plain old Ashley that <laughs> I was in March of 2020, um, which in some ways might be true. But I figured there's like one thing I have control over and that is no longer taking things for granted. Um, and you know, we, I've mentioned that I was, I've been vaccinated and this Sunday, um, I did readings at mass and then I went to our soccer season, our, our soccer league is starting up again and not under ideal conditions. It was cold and rainy and you have to wear a mask while you're playing soccer. Um, and so I complained about that a little bit, but underneath that, I was very, just like happy to be there, um, and aware of how grateful I was to be there. Um, and I like, I just let myself kind of, you know, rest in that consolation. Like it can be easy to be like, uh, this is selfish or I don't know. When consolations feel so rare, like they have for the past year, it can be okay to just kind of rest in your gratitude, um, for longer than you usually would, which is what I did this past past weekend and it was great <laughs> i feel like the classic campus ministry word for that is saver right oh yes yeah yes. you savored oh no the consolation <laughs> I was talking i was talking to father eric about this and uh he was like he was like yeah no you just gotta like suck the marrow out of that consolation oh and I was okay like, uh, <laughs> And I was like, uh, I'm a vegetarian. <laughs> He's like, okay, fine. Like, suck the nectar out of it. <laughs> oh, man. Well, his, so. food, his food metaphors are not always on point. But otherwise, the spiritual direction is He is, is from the Midwest. Good. Yeah. So. Oh, absolutely not. Get, hang up this. Listener, stop listening right now. Exit the podcast app. Before there's any more Midwest slander. Read the credits. Get us out of here. How dare you. All right. <laughs> Jesuitical is produced by Maggie Van Dorn. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Jesuitical is a production of American Media in New York City. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week. Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections.